this lecture, the topic has already been stated to you. And uh, it may sound a little odd to some people, especially in India, because we in India have been introduced to Greece in modern times. That is in the last two, 300 years by the British. Of course, uh, there used to be a small uh, bevy of uh, residents of Greeks in Calcutta as early as the late 16th century because the Greeks are great business people. And so they were in reality in Calcutta doing business. And that uh, was something very useful that resulted in a lot of uh, very healthy interchange, intellectual interchange uh, between Greece and India, about which people don't know enough. And uh, these Greeks were in spending money on this effort and they financed particularly a great, great uh, scholar from a Greece called Dimitrios Galanos, who spent uh, nearly 30 years, a little more than 30 years in Banaras, doing wonderful translations about which we still know very little and we are not uh, deeply familiar with it. Now, this is just an introduction to our present uh, understanding of Greece. Our means we Indians, uh, because I am addressing here, primarily addressing here, uh, the Indian audience. I am of course very glad to see my friend uh, Vasiliadis from Athena in the talk. Please welcome. Uh, now, the idea that Greece is a Western culture was uh, sold to us by the British because the British themselves had created this idea about ancient Greece. Now, India, as well as Greece, these are countries which are much, much older than this division of West and East. This division itself is a colonial product. Uh, you're all familiar with what Rudyard Kipling said, you know, East is East and West is West. So this was a very typical uh, statement to be made by a British poet uh, in that period. And uh, that betrayed anyway, the way the Britishers were thinking. Now, of course, they were thinking as people who subjugate another people think and nothing unnatural about it. But that is not historically true because Greece is a very, very ancient civilization. In their archeological excavations, they have found uh, things which go back to even six, 7,000 BC or even more, and artifacts uh, 
and small little toys which show that there were uh, people who had a very advanced, sophisticated civilization. So if you find a small statuette of a harp player or a flute player or some gods and goddesses, then that just shows that this is a very ancient and a very uh, diverse civilization which had acquired skills in a wide variety of things. So if you look at that way, then Greece has a history uh, of almost a history of almost 3000 years, even before Christ. And it has a great civilization uh, in the Minoan area, which is now the present day Crete. And uh, we have enough archeological evidence to say that these were people who had uh, poetry, who had th maybe theater also and dances and various kinds of sports a highly organized form of religion and rituals. And all this is quite evident. So when you look at Greece from this point of view, then to talk of Greece as Western uh, sounds uh, almost uh, a deliberate distortion. Who makes this distortion? Now, the, this, this distortion comes into existence when Europe revived itself in, uh, let us say, the 15th, 16th century under the impact of a movement which was called the Renaissance. You're all familiar with this. And as you know, very briefly, uh, now this renaissance in Europe, that is by nations which were not clearly divided as nations as they are today, but which were loosely there as linguistic groups like the French and the Germans and the uh, British, of course, not so neatly categorized as they are now, but they were there. So these were the people who revived their whole culture after something like uh, uh, a thousand year of Christianity, which had given them an entirely different approach to life. So what happens is that the Greek texts, the Greek texts in particular, are studied once again. Under the impact of Christianity, Latin was being studied because uh, in Europe, not in mainland Greece, but in Europe. Uh, because in mainland Greece, there is a continuity from very ancient times to the modern times of the Greek language. But in Europe, because of Christianity, it was Latin which had become important. So now the original Greek text was studied at this period because so many scholars uh, who lived in Constantinople, uh, which is the present-day capital of uh, Turkey. So uh, this was the place which was occupied by 
the Turks in 1453. And what happens is that a huge number of scholars, they run away uh, from the sword of Islam and they come to various other parts of Europe and this resuscitation takes place. Now, what are the main features? The main features is that the texts are studied again. Uh, text, all the classical texts, particularly of the uh, philosophers, right from the very early philosophers, then the Socratic philosophers, and not just the philosophers, but uh, those who wrote about the legal life, the cultural life, theater, poetry, etc. And it was largely poetry, and part of poetry was theater, which had a massive impact on Europe. You see, that was important. For instance, in England, uh, in 1595, Sir Philip Sidney, a very good scholar of classics, he wrote a book called In Defense of Poesy. Poesy, of course, is a translation from Greek word pitiki. Um, making, the art of making, making through words. So he wrote this famous work, which had a massive impact on England and other parts of Europe, where he said that poetry is something which is independent in its own right. And poetry incorporated theater and various other genres of the spoken word. This is also the period when theater came under revival. And in England particularly, of course in France and not so much in Germany right now, a little later, but in England particularly, there were great dramatists like Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare and Ben Johnson, uh, who were heavily influenced either directly or indirectly by this learning, which in defense of poesy, the work of Sir Philip Sidney had uh, propagated. So you see, there was an entirely different temperament which came about. Christianity had an otherworldliness about it. It was concentrating more upon the reality of the divine and underplaying the reality of the human condition. So a shift takes place in Europe at this time. And uh, these writers, as if you read the works of Shakespeare or Marlowe or Ben Jonson, uh, who was a great dramatist and uh, extremely well-versed in Greek and Latin, uh, who also accused Shakespeare of having little Latin and no Greek, uh, but he himself was a great scholar. So these people brought into a fresh perception of the world. And this was what may be called a more humanistic, humanistic approach. Humanistic in the sense that the role of man, and man here stands for man and women, 
you know, I have to qualify that because the feminist friends very easily take offense if you don't mention. <laughs> so here, human means human. And human becomes very important, rather more important. And the concentration is more on human concern and less on the otherworldliness. This was, of course, more in books, more in thought, more in beautiful writing, more in literature, but very little in practice. Because of course, along with this rise of humanism, this intellectual flowering, there was another reality. And this was the reality of Europeans, particularly the Portuguese and the Spaniards, uh, and later on the French and the uh, British sailing out to other parts of the world. Now this had become very necessary for economic uh, survival because the land routes had been blocked by the new Turkish uh, empire which was developing. Uh, you know, uh, most of you perhaps don't know that what is today Turkey was actually Greece. Uh, it's only that the Seligid Turks come to occupy it slowly and slowly from 11, 1200 onwards, that area. And then finally, at uh, 1453, they occupy Constantinople and they ch uh, change the, the great church, uh, Hagia Sophia, into the mosque as it is now, again changed into the mosque by Erdogan. So this routes were blocked, these routes were blocked and therefore it was necessary to approach the world through the sea routes so that all kinds of trade from the Eastern world, particularly from India could continue. You see, India had for various reasons, the image of an extremely rich uh, land. Of course, it was a true image because it was rich at that time uh, because of relative stability uh, in the Mughal Empire. And therefore, if you read Shakespeare, you would find there that uh, he is constantly talking about the rich Indies, a land full of jewels. So that was an exaggerated image in Shakespeare's mind. But anyway, that was the image, uh, which was in the minds of Europeans who wanted to have trade. And finally, the Portuguese succeeded in landing and then uh, the trade and colonization began. Now, this was the murkier side of humanism, European humanism, in which they began to look upon, they began to look upon the rest of the world as a place which could be simply easily colonized. And this colonization process began. Uh, today's lecture is not on that. But it is sufficient to say that this colonization was very aggressive and cruel. And it was not humanistic in any sense of the world. So humanism somehow got a little transformed again 
in terms of hegemony of the European uh, nations over Asia, Africa, and uh, North and South America. And you know all about that. Now, while this thing was going in practice, in theory, when the Europeans studied Greece, then for their contemporary needs, they imagined the Greek city-states as colonizers primarily. And so the Greek city-states of Athens, Sparta, Corinthos, Thebes, and uh, Delphi, and various smaller ones, but these are the big ones. They were imagined as colonizers primarily, as people who could go and uh, plunder or ravage and uh, occupy other parts of Greece or neighboring parts like Syracuse, etc. So the tendency was to think about the Greeks as conquerors. And of course, there was the image of uh, Alexander and his whole ecumenical uh, adventure right up to India, where they thought that uh, Alexander was uh, a great person who was spreading Greek culture. Now, anybody who has read the history by Aryan and various other historians of the period, they would tell you that Alexander was like many other conquerors, primarily a plunderer. And he, uh, he plundered too many uh, civilizations and he did much more devastation. And whatever little establishment of Greek culture or Greek cities that happened was not the work of Alexander, but always the works of artists, poets, architects, etc., who happened to go and inhabit uh, the land which a military general conquers. So that's the standard story. But in the minds of the Europeans, this whole image of Greece got was constructed, not got constructed, but was constructed deliberately as people who were also once colonizers in the past. So this was the image. And this is the image which was uh, brought into India by the British. And when uh, the Indians uh, through English read about the Greeks, then that's how they read it. Now, in the 19th century, things were quite different because there were Greeks like Galanos who approached India in a very different manner. Uh, they approached India as an ancient civilization which had too much to exchange and too much to teach and learn and uh, be in a dialogue with. So this, this was the attitude of the scholars. And they knew the reality of the intellectual power of Indian texts, etc., and they were primarily interested in that. Of course, the British were also interested, but there is a stark difference between how uh, the non-colonizers, because Greeks were in no way colonizers at that time, 
and uh, they were studying India from a different point of view. However, the image that dominated, the image which was taught to the anglophonic class in Greece was of this. Now, if you look at really ancient Greece, then you find that the beginnings of ancient Greece are very different. You see, present day Greece is a combination of the ancient inheritance and ancient culture of Greece and the advent of Christianity. Uh, there are no followers of Zeus and Apollo or uh, Athena or anybody who worships or that way in Greece today. But uh, apart from practical religion, the Greeks have a great sense of history in which the ancient culture is felt like a part of their national image and national asset. So if you look at that, then uh, Greece before the advent of Christianity is something else. And that is the period about which we can talk when we talk of the ancient times. The uh, medieval times or the beginning of the first millennium is a different story because by this time, Christianity arrives and then Christianity uh, comes into a deep conflict with the older religion. And by 325, when it becomes the official religion, then the story turns to be very different. So we are concerned with ancient Greece for the present lecture. And I'm trying to uh, point out certain things about the ancient culture. How do we go about finding out what was ancient culture? And how do we go about finding that out, uh, not just for Greece, but let us say for India or for any other culture, China, or uh, let us say uh, the culture of Cambodia, it is primarily through the works of art, the works of philosophy, the text, literary text, philosophical texts, and texts of all kind. So if you look at the ancient uh, texts of uh, Greece, then you would find that people had a very different set of beliefs and a very different attitude to life, a very different understanding of what life is meant to be, what life can be and what it cannot be. And it is on the basis of some of these notions that they raise the image of their uh, self, the image of their society, that's how society was, uh, reconstructed and uh, these there were certain fundamental values which gave the a very structure 
of ancient religion, ancient theater, ancient rituals, ancient art in Greece. So if you look at that, then you find the story is a entirely different story. It is not the story of just the conquerors. This is not to say that there were no wars in Greece. Of course, uh, Greeks have been a very warlike people and they have been fighting. And uh, the biggest uh, epics, uh, Iliada and Odyssea, they are about war and nothing else about war. So the ancient epics, for that matter, anywhere, a center around conflict, Aron, conflict and around war, but they also talk about the positive values of a culture. So if you look at epics of Greece, if you look at other writings, and then if you look at drama, which is a late period product, sixth centuries, uh, beginning from very early sixth century, fifth century, and then going on uh, till the Christians put an end to it. The values of ancient Greece are enshrined more and mentioned more in theater in a practical way than perhaps in the philosophical text, which we study and we study to a great benefit. So it is not in Plato, it is not in, Aristotle that you will get an idea of the details of culture, the details of ancient beliefs and because that was number one, a different period. And it also uh, philosophers are primarily concerned about uh, making certain postulations on the basis of philosophy. So it is in theater through the works of Ischylus, uh, through the work of Euripides, then the comedians, Aristophanes, and various other dramatists, uh, Sophocles, that you would find what were the most important stories, which is sometimes called the myth, but myth, you know, Mythos in Greece only means, in ancient Greek only means story. It doesn't mean false. Today, myth is, has a notion of something false. But it's not true, it's a myth. But this is not the real meaning of myth. Uh, this is the meaning which developed much later. Uh, myth only means story, kahani, katha, what we have, itivratta in Sanskrit. So myth or story has the story of how people lived, what were the values they held, and what were their very important beliefs. Now, if you look at that, then you find that some of the most uh, fundamental some of the most fundamental beliefs which the Greeks entertained in ancient times, and I'm talking here specifically of the Homeric times and the times which continue right up to a sixth century BC, 
because you find the same belief in theater. And theater doesn't talk about beliefs which are only in the past. It always talks about beliefs which are still in the minds of the people. So if you talk of this period and if you see, when you see a lot of notions about life, about reality as it was perceived, which has a massive similarity, great similarity with some of the Indian beliefs. Sometimes one wonders that how could this very great similarity occur? Now, I don't want to go into this question as to how did it occur? Were there people who travel? Were there texts that travel? Do we have any evidence of that exchanges? That's a separate story. But today I want to talk about what were these beliefs? Because when I did a comparative study of ancient Greek theater and ancient Indian theater, then I found that as a uh, reality of beliefs, these are there. They are there simply for us to see. Now, what are some of these fundamental beliefs? You know, just as in India, we believed in what was called purity and impurity or shauj and ashauj. Similarly, there was the Greek belief in miasma and catharsis. Miasma is some kind of an impurity, some kind of a debility, some kind of an impotence that comes onto you and makes you smaller and makes you a full of what you are not really. It's a great covering on you. It is a subjugation of the, of the soul or the psyche of the spirit. And when that is cleaned, when that is washed away, when there is a rejuvenation, then that process is catharsis, cleaning. Now, this belief that man can always enter into an unfortunate state of miasma. And in India, it was considered as ashauja because the word for purity in Sanskrit is shuchi, pure. And uh, in Greek it is katharos. So this idea that purity and impurity are constantly there in a life and in a conduct was very much present in the Greek mind. Now here purity and impurity is not uh, to be seen in terms of physical dirt or uh, in terms of a stigma only. But it is to be seen in terms of how the spirit is clouded by something unhealthy, by something impure. Where the lack of the vital forces happens. So 
search for vitality, search for immortality, progressing towards immortality was a primary concern. So the gods in Greece, they tasted ambrosia. Ambrosia gave them immortal life, just as the Indian gods had Amrita. And search for Amrit, procuring Amrit, and drinking and being live and immortal on the basis of Amrit was what the Indian gods did. And similarly, Ambrosia was there for the Olympic gods and uh, maybe for the Titans or Titans who preceded the Olympic gods. So this was the concept that the people, the gods are immortal. They do not age. They, whatever way they, and whatever indulge, live, whatever indulges, indulgences they do, however they enjoy their sensory life, it does not make them diseased and old. Whereas for men, that does. So men are more open to miasma. And men are more open to miasma if they make a error, an error of judgment. If they are carried away by their arrogance, and that arrogance is called hubris. So it is hubris which makes them do a very wrong kind of act. And as a consequence of that immoral act or a wrong act, the spirit is, is clouded, the spirit is uh, bereft of its vitality and therefore man suffers. It's only when he gets pure again that he can live happily or escape pain or if he has attained a great degree of purity, a great degree of heroism, then he can also attain the status of a semi-god like Heracles. So you see, this whole notion is something which is so familiar to us. I need not here in India, to the Indian audience, uh, waste time in giving the Indian parallels because you are all familiar with it. And, no need to give you examples from uh, Indian stories or Indian mythology. So this was really the this was really the fundamental notion. Now the concept of catharsis or attaining purity was not just in religious terms. It was in every aspect of human existence. So your mind would get clouded, your morals would be clouded, your whole spirit would be clouded. And if you commit a very grave error, then 
you would go into that region of the underworld hades where you have to suffer but if you have attained purity if you have attained great intellectual height then after death you would go to that part of the underworld that part of hades where there is sunshine where there is good food where there are philosophers so if you are very ordinary then you will go to the asphodel fields but if you are like plato or socrates then you will go to a very different the elysian fields so this whole concept that action that uh, free will is something which is rewarded is a a common belief between india and ancient india and ancient greece however there are limits to human will because it is the will of the divine the will of the gods which is supreme and that can never be challenged so this was one major aspect which i talked about this aspect of shauch shauch miasma and pathosis then another very major a belief that dominated greek life was ancestor worship worshiping the gods and worshiping your own ancestors you had a link with ancestors you had a link with those your parents grandparents and even earlier who had gone to the underworld to the other world and you had to offer them uh you had to offer them uh some sacrifices had to be conducted for them some blood had to be uh, shed and uh, it was believed that the blood would go to the underworld and it would revive the ancestors particularly those who were living in the asphodel fields so you can in in various myths you find these references and very detailed description as to how uh, people waited that the present living uh, living children grandchildren would perform sacrifices as uh, to re be revived uh, in while living in uh, hadis you know this is how so worship of the ancestor was extremely important it was done all around the year and there were certain periods for it Uh, the anthesteria was a period a holy period in which it was done and there is a lot which can be said about what happened at the period of anthesteria all kinds of rituals and rites and uh, activity was done so it was something uh, similar to what we still have in india called the pitripaksha the 15 days in which sacrifices are offered to the amains uh, to the ancestors and it was believed that uh, the uh, idolon the you know the subtle body of a person 
benefited from all these sacrifices, both of the one who sacrificed and both for whom this sacrifice was done. So the ancestors were like demigods and you had to be in communication with them. And you were in extremely close connection with them because this was the pattern of society. You were not in connection with the ancestors who had departed, but you were in close connection with uh, your elders, with other people of your family, uh, which was called the Fratria. And it had a pretty much similar structure as we had in India of the Gotra and the Jati. So you find all those parallels and all the rituals and all the, the social relationships, uh, which we find even today in India, and of course they existed in ancient India, you find them in ancient Greece. So uh, there were many rituals which were performed and of which we know from various stories, sometimes from plays. And the surprising thing is that in some of the Indian plays, those rituals are depicted, the Indians doing those rituals, and uh, then uh, in the Greeks also. So, uh, you know, for the Greeks, Orestia has a lot of those rituals. And for Indians, there are some plays like Veni Samuhar, where one of the rituals is shown Yudhishthir offering uh, sacrifice for the ancestors. Uh, so and all this thing is something which is extremely well documented in the text. Now, another important ritual was uh, the burial of the dead. So the burial of the dead, like the last rites, was extremely important. And uh, it was a great cultural issue. After somebody had died, he or she had to be given a proper burial and the rituals performed so that there could be a passage to the underworld. If the burial had not been done properly in proper ritual, then the passage would not take place. And hence there would be a suffering a state of uh, uncertainty for the departed soul. So it was extremely important for the surviving person to perform that. And uh, you know that this was uh, extremely significant in India also and Greece also. Now in Greece, what happened very often in actual practice in ancient times was that as a uh, as a result of vengeance, political vengeance, sometimes people were not allowed to bury their dead. So you have that beginning with the famous uh, episode of how uh, Achilles does not allow Hector to be buried and how the rituals to be held for uh, his dead body uh, in Homer. So you have that uh, thing and then you have so many other descriptions and stories. This did happen, but eventually in the interest of 
a person in the interest of the law, the Diki, the ancient law, the immortal law, it was important that a person is given the opportunity to be buried ritually. And this is what different plays and even Homer uh, asserts. So the worship of the ancestor was very largely related. It's not just ritual. It is not just uh, some kind of a religious practice which had to be done as uh, some rationalists or some materialists may say today, but it is actually a way of freeing yourself from the debt that you carry from your ancestors. Your ancestors have not only given you a body, a mind, a culture, a intelligence, and all these things. They have also given you the ability to choose between right and wrong, between, uh, between the smaller things of life and the greater things of life, between the mortal and the immortal. So you must live a life and you must perform all those uh, activities, not just rituals, but in life, you must perform all those activities which free you from the dead. You, there are very well prescribed things as to how you will have to uh, settle that debt. And you cannot run away from that debt. So the sense that I owe it to not just my ancestors, not just to my family, but I owe it to my city also, to the society in which I am born. I owe certain things and I cannot act in a manner that they should feel slighted. For instance, if you recall, uh, and there is this dialogue uh, in Socrates, I think it's called uh, Creo, if, if, if I remember it correctly. No, it's not Creo, it's some other dialogue where a disciple of Socrates goes to him uh, on the night before he is to be given hemlock and says, let's run away. And then through a very long argument, there is a whole dialogue. I unfortunately, I forget the name of that dialogue and the disciple today. Uh, Socrates says that, look, I owe it to my city that I cannot run away. Because if I run away, then my city would say that we raised you, we gave you education, we gave you a life. And today, because we are punishing you, right or wrong, because we are uh, administering a certain justice, which means that you have to bring ham law, that does not mean that I should run away. So you see, this is the sense of the debt you owe to your people. So this whole ancestor worship, all these rituals, they have to be seen in this context. And you have the same identical concept in India, which is mentioned 
in the Smritis as the Pancha Yagya, the five debts that we have. So you know about that. I, um, I have many more things to cover, so I'll not go into that. Another great belief, which was very common to Indians and ancient Greeks was protection to the supplicant. That is, if somebody says, please save my life, and you say, yes, I will, then you will put your own life at stake to protect his or her life. Even if that person has committed a crime and is running away from justice or running away from some kind of a vengeance, uh, you know, prorises as it was called, even if that person is running away, you will say, okay, I will protect you. So I have given you a safe refuge, what is called in Sanskrit, Sharan. And I have given you this word because you are a supplicant. You have surrendered before me and you are asking for protection. And now I give you my word for it. That person would be under an obligation to get rid of the crime, to get rid of the impurity that he has or she has incurred because of that crime, of that miasma, so to speak. So there were rituals, you know, like uh, worshipping uh, Zeus, Katharios, Zeus that purified, etc. The person would do that. But till such time the person had done it, till such time the person had uh, repented, you would protect. And there are many cases of it, uh, many uh, examples of it in various uh, mythologies of Greece. And they are to be found in the plays also where an enactment of the story is done. So this was protection to the supplicant. Sharanagata Raksha, as it may be called in Sanskrit, Sharanagata Raksha. You are protecting the Sharanagata, one who has surrendered before you. Even if he is an enemy, even if he was fighting you in a battle, and if once he says, okay, now, I accept defeat and I surrender to you and I fall at your feet and I touch your feet. In ancient Greece, they didn't touch feet, they touched the knees. Uh, you know, Indians used to touch the feet, they still do, but ancient Greeks used to touch the knees. Uh, so if he has done that, then you have to protect. So this was something which was entirely common. Now, if you had given your word, then word is in itself sacrosanct. And there is the power of the word, of what is called the vachan in India, that you have given your word, you have taken an oath. And the power of the oath was very important. You cannot transgress your oath. If you do, then you incur impurity, then you incur miasma. 
For instance, in the play Oedipus Rex, in the mythos of Oedipus, Oedipus says, I'm going to find out the person who is responsible for the plague which is visiting my city of Thebes, of which I am the king. And then it is discovered that he himself is responsible for that. But he, even when he gets an inkling that he may be responsible, he doesn't run away. And when the truth is told, he admits it and he punishes himself by blinding himself. His wife, who was also his mother, she punishes herself by suicide. So this sticking to the word, this was a very strong feature in the lives of ancient Greeks. So if you had made a promise, then you executed it. So Heracles uh, went to bring back from Hadis the wife of his friend Elkestis. He fought with the god and he brought back the lady and gave it back to her friend. And Hippolytus, he had promised Phaedra, his stepmother, that she would, he would not betray her secret. And he doesn't, even though he has to pay through his life. His father kills him because of that. So we have all kinds of examples, parallel examples in India. You know that, I need not mention. So this was the major uh, reason for power of the old. Yeah. So I'll go on to the next thing. What was called in Greek, Greece, the science or the art of uh, mentia, or the art of reading certain omens, what we call in Sanskrit shakuna, reading the open. Shakuna, of course, means watching the movement of the birds. Similarly, watching the movements of entrails of the sacrificed animal and various other things, throw of dice, etc. These were the methods of, of uh, pronouncing the future, of uh, making a prophecy. And then in Greece, uh, there were uh, women oracles in the temple of uh, Delphi, especially where you went with a problem, you went with a question that shall I win a war, should I attack such and such enemy or should I do this or that, then you were given a reply by the priestess of uh, Apollo, the woman uh, who was dressed as a man, some people say, and the answer would be given to you in some kind of a mysterious uh, verse and that verse would be then deciphered by some other specialist and you would do all that to find out what was the message of the oracle. So the power of the oracle was highly significant and you really had to honor it. Now, these were all certain things set 
under a cosmic law. The cosmic law was very important. Remember that just as the ancient Indian universe, uh, when you read the ancient Indian text, is not anthropocentric. The, the fulcrum there is not human being. It's not something that centers around the human beings. This is something that happens in Europe in the, as I said, in the period of Renaissance, that man becomes the center of the universe. The Greek universe, the divine, or not even the divine, but the whole universe itself, as it is, is there. It has a center. It has an own follows, as they say, they used to say, but it is the big universe. And you are a small part of that universe. You have a very small place and you have a very small power to execute things. And very often, because you keep committing all kinds of arrogant things, you end up causing a lot of suffering to yourself. So it is this large, big universe of which the gods are also a part. Gods are not beyond that universe. Gods are not controlling that universe. There is a certain universal law called Diki, which runs this universe. Now there are no clear explanations as was there a creator of universe or not, but the universe in the shape of a cosmic egg and very often this image of the egg as it is found in India also was there. Just as in India we imagine the universe as a great egg, Brahmand, large egg. Similarly, you have this image of the cosmic. So I made an attempt to, in, to encapture uh, some of the ancient uh, beliefs uh, or the contours of the ancient Greek universe and compared them with the, uh, with the Indian notions. I don't know how related it is with the topic, but I have a question first. And um, there's an interesting uh, interaction between Alexander and the gymnosophists of India, which yeah. is mentioned. Yeah. So I wanted to know that uh, is that a true uh, narration or is it something that has been, uh, I mean, I know he must have interacted, but is that the true uh, narration of it? Yes, yes, it's true. Uh, you know, this is mentioned by several Greek authors, Aryan, and uh, about the hymnosophists. Uh, and uh, there is uh, every reason to believe that it is true. I, I mean, the dialogue that happened may not be exactly true, but it is, it is so that Alexander went and met them. Now, what does it reflect? You see, it reflects that in ancient Greece also, uh, those who became philosophers or people who came close to knowledge or understand things very deeply, 
they were venerated even by the kings. And this is something we did in India too. Vidya Rajasu Pujyate Nahidhanam. You know, Bhartri Hari said that the kings uh, uh, honor knowledge, not uh, money. The money they can always take away from people. But knowledge is not something you can snatch. So Alexander went there and you know the story, the answer he got that get away from here because you're blocking my sunlight. So that's, that's, that shows the, some of the ancient notions. Uh, so uh, I have a couple of questions. The first thing is that uh, looking at whatever has been written about Greeks in English, it seems as if the Greek philosophers or the elites were not well disposed towards a popular religion. At least the, that is the kind of impression that we get. That, uh, you know, including the dramatists, all of these people were not very well disposed towards the Greek religion and that gives rise to a sense of tragedy. How far is this impression true or false? Uh, secondly, there's a historical question. Uh, uh, as you know, in the fourth century, there was uh, Constantine's rule and Christianity was imposed as a state religion. Yeah. And then there was a brief interlude when Julian came to the throne and tried to restore it. Mm. Uh, at that time, approximately, there was the Gupta Empire in India and they had trade relations with these areas. So is there any notice of these happenings in Indian records? These are my two questions. Well, your second question, I know nothing about in terms of records, etc. So I really can't answer it. And also it's, you know, far away from the topic of the day. Your first question, uh, which is part of the topic of discussion, I don't think the Greek philosophers had any contempt. Uh, we must be clear in our minds that let's not impose our present day notions of equality and democracy on ancient cultures, either ancient Indian culture or ancient Greek or Chinese or whatever. You see, people were not hesitant to make a hierarchy in terms of quality or in terms of power or in terms of rights, what we call rights today. So uh, certainly uh, today, if somebody shabbily dressed, unknown, walks into a seminar, then the organizers will only ask him to quietly sit, but not uh, refuse him entry. But if, uh, but in an ancient uh, symposium in Greece, where 10 philosophers or 20 were sitting, then they would not like an unknown or an entirely uneducated person to come in. So uh, there was this kind of distinction, but uh, they did not have any contempt. I mean, people very often talk about Plato uh, saying that uh, democracy is worthless. Uh, that's a philosophical argument. And I go uh, pretty much uh, a long way with Plato because I see democracy degenerating all over the world now. And exactly along the lines Plato had uh, predicted. But uh, people always valued in ancient times 
the value of the common participant in theater. Don't forget that if on one side Plato said theater is bad, theater was a way of life in Greece. And there were 10,000 people or 9,000 people who would be sitting in a theater, women, children, even convicts, and everybody uh, had a, a right to go to theater, a spiritual right. Even convicts were brought from jail so they, they could come and see theater. So I don't think the Greeks on the whole had a, a contempt for, uh, for the common man. It's not true. Uh, sir, I am aware of your works on Natya Shastra. So my question is on the uh, imitation. What Bharat takes for imitation and what Aristotle takes for imitation. How they are different and how they are related. Okay, very briefly speaking, uh, they are very closely related, but uh, is a uh, Aristotle wants to make it uh, a little, a little closer to what is observed in life and what is seen, and hence to be imitated or to made a, into a mimesis of it. Uh, whereas in the Indian tradition, you observe, you observe what has happened, uh, what is there in loka or in the world. But in recreating it, you don't have to be very close to in your representation. Uh, there is a greater degree of freedom allowed and you can make it more ornamental. But I think this is about the only difference. But the fundamental notion that uh, theater imitates that theater does a mimesis or an anukara is absolutely common. And you can read, I'm sure you must have read my book and all detailed arguments. Uh, it is there. And also I have lectures on this in my website, uh, uh, YouTube website. So you can see specifically lectures on imitation and this subject. You can see my website. They are available in English and in Hindi books. So the, my question is about the, is there any relation between the Harpudis and Hanuman in Indian character? So. Um, a relationship between what? Uh, Harpudis. Harpudis. Hercules. Yeah. No, there is none. Uh, there is none. Is it, I, there is, uh, I, the concept of Hanuman is very different. Uh, it's a concept related to Rama, the hero, and uh, uh, Hercules or Heracles is the hero in, in himself. Heracles is Rama, so to speak, in terms of a dramatic story. You see, he is a, and he becomes a demigod. He finally becomes a, a, a demigod uh, and he is to be seen in the heavens. So this is not the relationship uh, between, uh, they, they, I don't see there is much possibility of making a parallel. 
you know. Yeah, we, we should try and have parallels where they are. Of course, we should search and it's, it's a good search that you are talking about. Um, my uh, question is uh, basically relating to why the Western world is so afraid or insists on denying all these ancient civilizations, whatever their achievements and successes in terms of in, uh, knowledge gathering and their practices. What is the reason behind this persistent denial? <laughs> well, this is off uh, the topic, but let me just refer to you uh, to a talk of mine on my YouTube. It is called Why Are Foreigners Afraid of Hindutva? And you will find all the answers there. Uh, you see, the ancient Greeks, <laughs> uh, how can we drag them into this uh, contemporary political scene? So uh, that's, that's my answer. But you can, you can see my video and you will have all the answers about this. And if you have questions, then please, I'll be happy to take them. You can email me. I'll be very thankful if you put me questions on that. Kananji says, I request about the three Greek terms Dr. Gup mentioned. Uh, I can't seem to spell them correctly. One is related to ancestor worship, sounded like antisiria. Uh, second is protection to the supplicant, sounded like Prosiris, uh, the universal law which the Greeks um, believe in, like a cognate of dharma. So he wants you to just, uh, if you can repeat that. Well, Antisteria was a festival. It was a great festival which was held in uh, different Greek states and all kinds of rituals uh, in which there was worship of ancestors. And uh, uh, on many occasions in the Greek uh, festivals, there were uh, various other small rituals related to the local gods that always took place. So this was the manner in which ancient civilizations operated. But the thrust of this was ancestor worship. You see, people in ancient times did not look upon, uh, upon the calendar in terms of convenience. You see, today it is very convenient to go to Greece uh, in June, July and see ancient theater. But the Greeks themselves never performed their plays in this very beautiful weather the best weather of the year. They performed it in the worst weather. They performed them in February, where, uh, you know, as my friend uh, Vasiliadis will tell you, <laughs> that it rains all the time in February. It's, it's sticky, cold, bad. But all these people used to sit in the great theater of Dionysos and watch plays and have this festival of six or seven days, the festival of Dionysus, because this was the sacred period, according to the calendar for the God, the God Dionysus, as they say in English. So 
they would do it in his honor in his period irrespective of the fact that it was uncomfortable for them so uh, many things were done because you owe it to somebody so that was the antisteria then i think the question is about dicky or the law which is the unwritten law but which is to be felt which is to be understood which is to be uh, uh, recognized just as the notion of rit in the vedic samhita is not something which is spelt out it is not a set of rules as you find in smritis because rit is something which is enshrined as a concept concept of truth it's not the truth of uh, empirical kind so this is about the key is uh, i i don't remember right now the greek word for it but uh, it was this word which you gave and the protection that you uh, provided although your life came into a danger because of that and this was very common because when you would say that i'll protect you then somebody will come to pursue that person and you will have to ward off that person fight that person and sometimes even die fighting so this was the the code of honor and and you know and you observe that honor because honor was something which had a price in life you know price he, he a price not in the modern sense money wise but in sense of honor and uh, the greek word for that was timi now of course you also have a price timi a price tag today also but the ancient timi meant that this was my honor so everything has a price but everything is not to be sold so if i have given my word my word has a price or an honor or a timi and it is not something which can be sold if you give me money then i'll take back my word we are all familiar with this ragu ke nuvit sada chale aayi pran jaye prabhachan jaye it's exactly the same before i move on to the next question i would like uh, to introduce a very esteemed uh, guest today who's with us uh, on this uh, webinar and that's uh, dimitrios vasiliadis ji and he is the president of the hellenic indian society for culture and development uh, in greece and i would like to just and uh, ask him to unmute and say something i would like to thank uh, barad gupti for speaking once again for greece he's a great lover of greece and he has come many times now unfortunately you cannot see him due to coronavirus we hope that the borders will open soon and i will be able also to come to india i'm planning to come in december we have a program there with icsr exhibition of paintings and fashion of greek for the 200 years of greek liberation and we hope that uh, we will be able to meet and to have some speeches there barat gupt has worked uh, a lot for the greek culture in india apart from the drama the theater also we had uh, 
I was there in when he organized with uh, the Indian uh, Indira Gandhi National Center of Arts, the conference, International Conference on Galanos, which, for whom he spoke. And uh, we are very grateful to him for all the work he does. And the speech was very enlightening, very good. I just I wanted to ask uh, if Greece is the basis of the Western civilization, then why we differentiate that Greece is not Western? Because West means Greece. You know, all the values of West are from Greece, apart from Christianity, which Christianity also in some way is uh, a continuation of the Greek philosophy with the Trinity and all this, uh, if we go to the philosophical aspect, not in the ethical and the administrative. Uh, then why is the difference, this difference West and uh, Greek civilization, all the values, democracy, Olympics, uh, theater, or whatever West uh, is based on the Greek civilization. So why you have made these uh, terms in your the title of your speech, saying it's not a Western, Greece yeah. is not a Western civilization? Yes. Well, I, I am very happy uh, first of all, that uh, uh, Dimitrios is here, and uh, we are very old friends, and we uh, keep working uh, in our uh, different countries for this close interaction between India and Greece. So I'm very glad he's here. Now, in answer to your question, you see, I, as I said right in the beginning, when Europe uh, revived itself, uh, from 15th century onwards and made this whole concept of the West. You see, this whole construct of the West is a colonial reality. It comes into existence when colonization begins. And then they construct the West and they take only certain aspects of ancient Greek culture. They don't take all those aspects of Greek culture, which I have talked about today. So they say, well, this is what Greece had. Greece uh, was an invader. Greece was a colonizer. Uh, Greece, like Alexander, had the Acumenia. And it gave this, this, this to the quote-unquote Western world. So I wish they had taken much more from Greece. You understand, if they had taken uh, this whole sense of justice, which is the Greek sense of Diki, if they had taken this view that uh, the world is not uh, centered around human beings, but it is centered around uh, the cosmos itself, then we will not have this environmental crisis that we have today. You see, Greece had so much more to offer than what was taken by the Europeans. So I think that's where I make my objection. And that's when I say that Greece is not just Western as the Europeans have interpreted it. Uh, for instance, if you take uh, drama, all the music, all the sign language, all the language of uh, suggestion, the art of moving hands, the art of moving the mask, all this was left out when they recreated their drama. 
they took just a few things. Of course, they created very great drama out of it. We have immortal poets like Shakespeare, uh, which they produced. And it's a great pleasure to me, especially to read Shakespeare. But I am trying to draw attention to so much which they left out because it was not useful to them in order to construct what they wanted to construct. So that's my uh, distinction that I make because the Europeans themselves created the notion of the West. And this was notion as against the East. I'm sure this was not the notion in the mind of ancient Greeks when they had a communication with Indians because they were far close to Indians. Uh, they could, you know, the, uh, the Indo-Bactrian Greece who came, settled here, who could uh, make a, a temple or who could raise a, a stele or a, or a pillar for Vishnu. So these were people who belonged to a different world and which believed in a total unity of things. And uh, what Europe took from Greece was something rather limited. This is the distinction that I made. So Greece is more than the West. <laughs> Greece is the whole world. Greece is the one of the fulcrums of the ancient world. It has, it has the greatest contribution to the ancient world, along with China and India. Uh, R. Karnikji says that uh, the words Yavana and Lech appear in Indian historic reference quite often. When did these two terms enter India and it refers to whom? Oh yes, this is very well known and uh, uh, Dimitrios himself has written about this, you know. Uh, it is, you see, we, we knew what was called the Eastern Greece. Uh, Ionia uh, and, and what is today the present day Turkey. And uh, this is what we knew very well and we knew it uh, since very ancient times. As a matter of fact, uh, there is a reference in the Bodhayan Shok Sutra that uh, people from uh, now what is called the Punjab or the, the area of the Aryan land, uh, they went west and they went as far as what is now known as Greece. You see, it is said, Pratyan uh, Amavasu. Tasyaite Gandharayasa Parasava Arattaiti. That in the opposite direction went, that is the western direction, went Amavasu with his people, and his children are the Gandharas, that is the Afghans, then the Parasava, the Persians, and the Arattas. So the Arattas would be the west of the Persians and in ancient times, what was west of uh, Persia? It was Greece, Ioannia and all these uh, areas. So, so there was a very close connection between people who traveled. We do meet some strain, uh, stray references, 
But if more research is done, if more archaeological uh, experiments are undertaken, then I'm sure that a lot uh, more evidence regarding the exchanges would uh, appear. Because if the ideas are so similar, then the people must have communicated. We know that Indians have always traveled. They have traveled for uh, trade, they have traveled for knowledge, they have traveled for other means. Um, and we find that Indian scholars often talk about how Indian culture or, uh, you know, uh, would have influenced Greece and other places. Uh, do our scriptures also talk about how, you know, the Greek travelers or the how Greek philosophies have influenced the Indian society? Um, a lot of people say the contribution is democracy, although when we look at the Indian co concept, we see that democracy was more or less there, probably not as defined as it is in uh, uh, Greek culture and the modern times. Um, so what is the influence of, or was there any influence of um, the Greek philosophies on, let's say, pre-invasion India? The impact of certain Greek texts and uh, certain what may be called specific areas of knowledge, uh, they are very well recorded in the post-Alexandrian period. Uh, particularly from 2nd century BC, when the Greeks had uh, a kingdom in uh, present day, what is now Kazakhstan and this area, you see the Indo-Bactrian kingdoms as they were called. So uh, there was, I think, a significant interchange between uh, what is called astronomy and astrology, Jyotish you know, Palit and Karnit. And uh, there is a lot of exchange in that area, very well recorded. And uh, there is evidence of it because by looking at the text, you can see that evidence. Now, I think there is, uh, there is a massive interchange between uh, medicine because uh, ancient Greek medicine uh, and ancient Indian medicine, they have very fundamental uh, notions which are absolutely common. Like Ayurveda believes in Vat, Pit, Kaf, three dhatus. So the Greeks also had, Pythagoras also postulated the three, he made four out of the three. Uh, you know, what with cuff, they became, uh, bile became white and yellow, or black and yellow. So, and various other things, I don't have time to explain. I have papers on it. You can see them on the net. The <coughs> exchange was there. And the evidence of that is also uh, not lacking because uh, Indians used to send a large number of mercenary soldiers to Persia and Persian army had Greek ar uh, Indian archers who would also take with them uh, Indian Vaidyas or doctors. And it is from there that the interchange uh, took place. So uh, th this is also a great possibility and uh, we have evidence for that. So uh, this is what I can say about two or three areas. 
Then, of course, there is, as I said, huge similarities. I have just talked about similarities in the Homeric text and the later Indian text. So somewhere or the other, people must have been traveling. It's only that we don't have uh, a physical evidence of those things. But there must have been massive interchange. It cannot be that ideas are so, so similar. And for such a long time, and for such a long period. And we know that people were traveling. Uh, we don't have evidence of Indians traveling into, uh, so far, we don't have into, let us say, the Minoan culture or into the uh, Pelasgian area, you know, the what is now the sea between Greece and Turkey. But uh, I think I'm quite hopeful that uh, if there are more excavations, uh, then evidence will come up. Uh, sometimes people have some kind of indications like uh, recently I read some papers upon uh, the Indian monkey being uh, present in some Minoan paintings, late Minoan paintings or the period that follow it. And that, that monkey is not to be found in Europe uh, or Greece even to this day. So it must be uh, an item of... Uh, export, which meant that there was trade as early as that period. Of course, we have all evidence of trade between Rome and India, the second century BC and all that. But we can go back to a very old period. And uh, if more money is spent upon this, then this would happen. If there's great co greater cooperation between India, Turkey and Greece, then this would happen. And I hope Turkey joins in. <laughs> and it's very important because that was Greece. That was ancient Greece. It was the hub of culture. All music, ancient Indian, uh, ancient Greek music came from uh, that region. So all the Lydian scale and the Doric scale of ancient music they are from that period and that part. I, I've mentioned this in my book. You can see that. You can see a comparison of ancient Indian music and ancient uh, Greek music. You know, what the theorists in Greece have written. And you can see massive similarities between the two. Jacob G asks that uh, Indica mentions that one Heracles had come to India from Greece 6,000 years before Megasthenes time and that the Pandyas of Tamil Nadu are descendants of his daughter Pandey. Is there a corresponding mention in our texts? No, I don't know of it. Uh, and if, if there are any texts of that period, possible period, uh, the oldest uh, texts of Tamil are Tolkapiyam, etc., which are 2nd century BC. But then, you see, there are various kinds of theories. And uh, uh, let's uh, not forget that sometimes when people make comparisons, then on the basis of some very slight comparison, 
they uh, make uh, assertions which may not be true. Like um, even Megasthenes and some Greek authors, they thought that uh, Dionysus was Shiva. So uh, there are certain similarities between Shiva and Dionysus, that they are frenzied God, that they are large hearted and all that. But uh, unless you have a more accurate evidence of somebody coming or something, uh, you can't really make any construct. I mean, the earliest evidence of the voyage of a Greek's great Greek sailor into India was the voyage of Scylax. So that's 6th century BC. Uh, he went right, uh, you know, up uh, into Indus. Obviously, people had explored India. That's how Alexander thought of invading India. They, he had some kind of a map and there was a knowledge about India. So that's the oldest evidence of a Greek visiting uh, so far in texts and in uh, other. But uh, I think that if excavations are done, this is my own hunch, that if, if excavations are done in uh, Crete, where the Minoan culture exi uh, once existed, and in Turkey, and in the islands, you know, like these, these islands, like uh, between, you know, in the sea. Uh, there you will find some very important clues. And those would be uh, very decisive clues. You see, these art artifacts are able to uh, show the connection and prove it. Then we can build slowly more and more. That's I, I think we need a great archaeological revival now in the world for the ancient world and for the ancient cultures to understand how they had lived and how they had interchanges between themselves. Because the ancient cultures were constantly interacting. Even if there were wars between them, they were all also very good and healthy interchanges. So the next question is from Nand Kumarji. Uh, he says, did Stoicism draw anything from ancient Indian thought? Well, there are obviously there are very similar notions are and uh, people have written, uh, you know, a lot about this and uh, a friend of mine had a PhD on this and he wrote Miltiade Spiru, his name. He has written a whole book. I hope it is published uh, now. Unfortunately, he passed away. So he had some uh, very good leads and I'm sure there must have been some exchanges, some ideas and the notion that by uh, totally controlling the senses, you achieve a divine perception or you achieve an extrasensory perception. You see, this is the notion common to uh, Stoicism. And 
to the idea of tapa, you know, the Indian idea of tapa of various kinds. You see, all, all Christianity is not colonization and going out. The inward going Christianity, and particularly Christianity in Greece, has a long history of this sort. And you can still see great living examples, present day living examples of this. Uh, if you go to Mount Athos, I have been there a couple of times and I've spent time there, so I know it. So these are people who are in a different set of reference in, in Christian terms, pursuing the same kind of goal. Um, one of my thoughts was um, regarding this aspect of uh, individualism uh, coming from this, let's say, Western type of thinking uh, versus the non-individualism that I can see or have experienced uh, like uh, in India, where like the giving up of the self, the ego versus the idea of um, a personality of a grow of a growing personality in the Greece, and I wonder if this two um, these two very different ideas uh, uh, if they clashed somehow um, during Aristotle's time or in the time when when Alexander uh, entered India because I I was just curious about all the universities, the ancient Indian universities that might have impacted also Alexander and um, what came after Alexander, the 200 years of, of um, Indo-Bactrian culture there. And I wonder if these two um, massive types of, uh, the different types of um, perceiving reality, if, um, if they, if they, in a, in a sense, if they get a, got a shape then or not. You know, Thank you. individualism, as we know it now, is a very, very modern, recent thing. Uh, there is a big difference between the individual or the self. The notion of the self or the individual who uh, seeks knowledge, as you find in Plato or you find in uh, Aristotle or as you find in the ancient uh, uh, Greek idea of eudaimonia, uh, uh, that is uninterrupted flow of pleasure, which is a very higher kind of pleasure, pleasure of knowledge. Now, this is something that an individual would achieve. It's not something which a city would achieve. It's not something you find in theater. Now, this is the notion of the person attaining some kind of understanding, knowledge, or pleasure. Now, this is the ancient world, whether in Greece or in India. But what you call individualism is a very modern European product where 
the person becomes more important than uh, let us say the community or uh, the nation where the the whole fulcrum of existence is the individual so it is a notion that comes into uh, the history of human thought with Rousseau where you say my freedom is freedom my uh, liberty is uh, is liberty and my brotherhood or sisterhood is real relationship with other you see after the romantics there is a whole different way of thinking so individualism comes into existence with the romantics it comes that's why you have Goethe you know, writing Dr. Faustus. You can't have that kind of thinking, let's say in ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, the individual, the person is too small to demand that society should look after him or should adjust itself or change itself according to him or her. That's, I don't find that idea. I don't find that idea at all uh, in, in the ancient world or in the medieval world. It's not even a Christian idea. In India, in, in, in Christianity also, that kind of idea doesn't exist. It's a very modern uh, notion of individual, what the modern individual is and who seeks liberty, who seeks equality, who seeks freedom. So I don't think in my view that it has anything to do with ancient culture. Yes, the individual or the person could be wronged. Like uh, the, in, in the story of uh, Agamemnon, the play, and in that whole myth, uh, Clytemnestra was wronged because she was abducted and married by Agamemnon. And then uh, her daughter was sacrificed, Iphigenia was sacrificed. So she felt that she was wrong, that she had suffered pain at the hands of her husband. But that is not individualism because they interpreted that suffering in moral terms that Agamemnon had no right to abduct her. He had no right without her will to sacrifice his daughter. So uh, even according to ancient Greek terms, he did something wrong. And that's how the person would assert her or his right for vengeance or for redress, but not in terms of the individual, that it is my personal freedom to, uh, to do this and you may agree or you may not agree. And then this whole notion of modern, certain modern philosophical thought that one man's meat is another man's poison. That I, you know, I, I enjoy this, I like it, I live this way, you live your way. And this notion of pluralism is not a part of any ancient society. Uh, before I come to the thing, I have discussed you with many times, but uh, the, what uh, you mentioned about the island of Crete, 
there is a very interesting thing which came to my mind when you were speaking in the life of Swami Vivekananda by his Eastern and Western disciples. When he is coming back from the first time to India, passing the island of Crete, he has a great vision of a Rishi-like figure who said there is the origin of Christianity and India's connection with Buddhism, uh, Thiraputas, which became Thiraputics. And he has this vision and he pointed to the island, ki, what is that island we just passed? He was told, Crete, we have just passed the island of Crete. That interesting fact that something, uh, archaeological thing is, must be dug up near in Crete and Minion was recorded by Swami Vivekanand in his life by his Eastern Western disciples 100 years back. If there is a connection and the archaeological digging should be done there. Well, I hope somebody undertakes that archaeological digging, they'll find something useful. If even if they don't find what Vivekanandji saw, uh, he, we will find something useful if archaeological excavations are done. Uh, many people have, uh, you know, made these similarities. Uh, there used to be a Greek scholar about 35 years ago in, in a town called Trikala uh, in uh, Greece. And he had this notion that uh, the Minoans had gone to uh, India and they founded the Harappan civilization. So this was on the basis of the imagery of the bull and various other things that he believed in it. And I met him, I talked to him, I think in 96 or 7. And I said, but is there any archaeological evidence, textual evidence or anything else? And if that is not there, then just on the basis of some similarities, uh, we cannot make a narrative. You see, so uh, certainly uh, seers do have vision. And it is true that visions of great uh, seers like uh, Swami Vivekanand uh, are extraterrestrial messages. And if we do a proper uh, scientific follow-up or an archaeology, then maybe something can come up. I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't disagree with it. Uh, they just uh, that uh, Theravad Buddhism, Theravad, or the sons of Theravad Buddhism is Theraputtaras or Kutas. From there, the word Theraputics have come. Is there that is correct uh, etymology? Is it that correct? Theravad, Theraputas. Therapeutics. I I don't think so because you can't really linguistically say that because uh, uh, you know the thera therapia or therapeti or that, that is an entirely different linguistic meaning and compound in Greek and theravad and thera. I don't think you can associate the two. It happens very often that in some languages, the words are identical, but the meaning is entirely different. So just on the basis of one thing, uh, such a presumption cannot be made. And uh, the Minoans, they were a very different kind of people. Uh, they, if there is one thing about them, certain then it is this that they were very very far from any ascetic way of life 
<laughs> from whatever evidence we have archaeological evidence uh, they they were into a very dynamic life enjoying life of course this may not be the true picture for everybody living there that may be the picture of the royal people the royal kingdom so history is always as i say history is always a fiction which is created in the present i i very strongly assert that history is a lower form of literature there is more imagination in history than in facts anything is possible what portion actually i put was that our historical narrative with aryan invasion coming in 1500 which was built during the colonial times but from the greek sources like megasthenes and his fragments as quoted by other greek historians we yeah. have from their greek records the history of india stretching to 7th millennium bc it is said 153 kings stretching to a time period of 6451 before the time of alexander that's what megasthenes fragments attest ki there is a great antiquity before the coming 6500 years there is a king is coming so from that point only we could have discarded the colonial time frame for us no no you see i i understand that but that is something which megasthenes had taken from the indian text you see the chronology of the indian kings existed in india it's not something which came from greece it's only uh, it's only a recording of the indian kings that megasthenes made now it is to uh, it is it is for the indians to go into their text and see how far this chronology can be uh, validated by indian texts and indian archaeology and other indian texts you see megasthenes just mentioned and megasthenes makes a lot of mistakes like uh, he makes five kinds of classes instead of brahma kshatriya vaishya shudra he makes uh, five classes so there are several things which he came to know which were right and which he has recorded very well and there were certain things about which he was wrong so uh for instance he has uh, recorded that there was no practice of making slaves if you won in a war in india now he was shocked by it because the greeks always took slaves so he saw a very different kind of behavior and he recorded so you can see that there were many things uh, which he said but they have to be compared with other sources and with other parts of evidence about ancient indian history and i don't think the aryan invasion uh, comes in here at all because if you talk about the aryan invasion theory then the greeks are also aryans and they came from the north or from the, you know some strange place uh, the same thing applies to them they are they are uh, Gr- greeks are also people who are indo european proto indo european speaking so this is all a very modern narrative about 200 years old not even 200 years it starts in 1857 so i i don't think we should mix uh, the ancient sources 
with this narrative yeah this is a very quick question about a book uh, written by the orientalist edward pohok who wrote wrote a book called uh, india in greece what is your opinion of uh, the you know scholarship of that book and how valid it is in the light of today's scholarship well i think it's a very old book it was written sometime in 1923 or so and i have a copy of it and uh, i don't find it uh, you know going into any deep evidence i have a copy of that book some it's on the net and somebody sent me so there is not much in it except some generalizations yeah. all the generalize all the things that i said today to you they are not based upon imaginative comparison they are all based upon textual references and you can read my book dramatic concepts greek and indian in which in that particular chapter all the quotations from the greek and the indian texts are given so you can see that this is part of recorded textual comparison if that is available then we can say that yes things were common but if that is not available or some such strong uh, hard core evidence is not available Uh, then we should not go into imaginary flights. I wanted to say we have a plan to make a statue of Megasthenes in Delhi. I don't know if you have heard about this, Bharat Guptaji, uh, because recently we made a statue of uh, India. We made a statue of Mahatma Gandhi outside from the Indian Airs in Athens, and uh, from our side, our society, the Hellenic Indian society, we have uh, from our members, we have collected some money. To make a statue of Megasthenes, what is your opinion on this? Because I see you a bit critical, because we consider also Megasthenes as uh, one of the first sources of the Indian history, and he is the first yeah. recorded ambassador to India, foreign ambassador to India. So it's an important personality in Indian history, yeah. but in Greece we don't honor him so much. Nobody almost knows him. So in India, everybody knows Megasthenes because in the schools you study in the history. Everybody, some people even consider him as the father of the Indian history. So I thought we made a statue because I had the proposal to make Sikandar and uh, Alexander and Porus, but I thought, as you said, uh, Alexander was an invader while Megasthenes was a scholar and he wrote about the Indian history and Indian culture. She will be the more appropriate person. To make his statue, maybe in the area where the embassies are there, or the embassies in Delhi, they are together in one place. So we may. Yeah, you know, my reaction is that uh, if a statue for Megasthenes is to be raised, it should not be in Delhi. It should be somewhere in Bihar. You know, where he may have in Patna or you know wherever uh, the possible capital. Uh, of uh, uh, the king uh, he uh, was living with number 1 but if you talk in terms of national exchange then i would say that uh, 
it would be best to have a statue of Socrates. Because Socrates symbolizes uh, the best of the philosophy of Greece. And Socrates is known in India even now to a very large, wide variety of people. And the writings of Socrates through his disciple Platon, uh, they are read. So uh, I think Greece would be recognized and a closer relationship would be there uh, if uh, Socrates uh, is represented. I think that, uh, of course, he never came to India or he has perhaps not even mentioned India, but he symbolizes the best of Greek philosophy. And we should uh, recognize him by that. That's my opinion, you know. After all, uh, people make statues uh, if they can pay for it. <laughs> and whosoever pays for a statue and arranges for it, makes it. Megasthenes, of course, had a contribution. But if it is to be made, it should be in Patna or it should be in the region where Pataliputra supposedly was. That's what I would say. 